All right, everybody, welcome to the first of four weeks of our newcomers orientation. We do this three times a year, four weeks. I take a group like you aside who have been attending the church uh, for the opportunity for you to learn more about who we are and where we've come from and what we believe and what we hope to accomplish in the future. And in a small setting like this, to be able to answer any questions that you might have. So a question comes up as I'm going through this stuff, then don't hesitate to stop me and raise your hand, and I'll do my best to answer your questions. Uh, You have on page one, if you'll look at your notebooks, an introduction, and then we'll go through the first lesson together. But uh, top of page one, we say this class is designed to assist you as you decide whether CBC is the place for you and your family. The choice of a church is a serious matter. It must be made prayerfully. It should also be a decision based on adequate information about the church. It's our prayer that the Lord will grant you wisdom in that decision. We have no illusion that ours is the only church. There are many who are faithfully carrying out the Lord's work. But we believe we have established a God-honoring church that provides a way for each member of your family to grow and serve. So we hope this will be profitable for you as you undertake this decision. So I guess our church really starts with me and my family, so that's why we start out in the history of telling you a little bit about who we are and what our background is and how it is that we came to plant this church in September of 2001. So we are just over 14 years old now. But my story goes back to growing up in a Christian family with a a father who was a pastor, but a Pentecostal pastor. So I grew up in a Pentecostal home, Christian home, uh, and my dad is with the Lord, my mom is with the Lord, and I look forward to seeing them again. So even though they were Pentecostal, and uh, actually my dad was Pentecostal, I'll tell you about my mom in a minute, but my dad was Pentecostal, he uh, was a believer, and is with the Lord. Uh, So I grew up in uh, Pentecostalism. Now I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, and if you're familiar with Pentecostalism, You know that there are grades of manifestations of the gifts, depending on what group you're with, that some are more demonstrative than others. So you might be with a group, a church, that believes in speaking in tongues or prophesying, but you could go there for a long time and you would never see anybody actually do that. But in our church, we were very expressive. Every week somebody was speaking in tongues. Every week someone was prophesying. Every week someone was running the aisles and being slain in the spirit. So it was it was that kind of Pentecostalism that I grew up in. Now, in God's providence, my, my, my father passed away uh, when I was 11. And uh, just a few years later, I was entering eighth grade. And in the town I grew up in, I grew up downriver here in Ecorse. So I tell people I grew up in Ecorse and I live to tell about it. And, uh, and in Ecorse, they only had, uh, we only had uh, two schools, no middle school. You had elementary, you had high school. So elementary went up to seventh grade, and then eighth grade, you went to the high school building. I went through elementary through seventh grade, but then in eighth grade, I would have been going to the high school building. My mom did not want me to go there because my two older brothers had gone there. That had not been a good experience for them. There was a lot of uh, racial tension in our town. In fact, the high school was right, it was and is right on Outer Drive. And the, uh, at the time in the seventies, there were no black people living on our side of Outer Drive and there were no white people on the other side of Outer Drive. That's how racially divided it was in the school was right. So it was, there was a lot of reasons why she didn't want me to go, uh, some danger, that kind of thing. 
but she didn't know where to send them. Uh, we were Pentecostal, and there were no Pentecostal schools around at the time. And about in the 70s, about the only schools you knew of that were private schools were Catholic or, or Lutheran uh, schools. Um, but my mom got a job after my dad passed away at Wyandotte Hospital. One of her co-workers had her daughters going to intercity Christian school. And we had never heard of it, even though we were just in e-course and it's in Allen Park. But my mom heard about that, enrolled me at, at intercity. I went there from 8th through 12th grade, graduated from there. And really, the ministry there had a, a profound impact on my life. One, it changed uh, my belief system. Uh, changed uh, the way I viewed the Bible and uh, some important issues on the gifts and, most importantly, on one's relationship with the Lord and whether or not you could lose your salvation. As a Pentecostal, we believed you could lose your salvation. And I grew up believing that. And all the way through high school, I was still a Pentecostal. And I was tormented by that, and some of the teachers dealt with me on it and were able to help me straighten that out. And I came to believe that what the Bible teaches is once you are genuinely a child of God, you remain so for eternity, uh, so eternal security. And that was actually the main issue, not even the gifts that caused me to leave the Pentecostal church. So I went to a Baptist, what was really a Baptist school. It was called Inner City Christian High School. It's now called Inner City Baptist High School, but it was Inner City Christian then. But it was Baptist. And I was indoctrinated with Baptist teaching, and I came to believe that. So at graduation, I left my Pentecostal church. I went to the first Baptist church I was ever a part of. And that church was in Dearborn Heights. It's a small church that a friend of mine was attending. And it uh, was a combination of Jack Hiles and Peter Ruckman. Does that mean anything to anyone? Yes. <laughs> so... Here's what that translates into. It was crazy. <laughs> it was a crazy Baptist church. Jack Hiles was a guy, now deceased, but he had a gigantic church in Indiana with a Christian college, but he was a very authoritarian. I referred to that in the first hour, authoritarian. This guy, one of his sayings was, I'm not a dictator. I'm the only tater. <laughs> okay? So that was the way the pastor at this church was. And then Peter Ruckman was a guy who believed that the King James version of the Bible is the only uh, word of God in English. So much so that the English is actually more accurate than the Greek from which it came, according to him. So that's the Baptist church I was in. And meanwhile, I started dating Kim, my now wife. She's in the back. And we celebrated 30 years this past, uh, past March. Uh, but we were dating. Now, I met Kim, or knew Kim, because of high school. She graduated the year after me at uh, Intercity. We never talked while we were in high school, not at all. But after high school, a friend of mine encouraged me to give her a call, and I did. Now, I give you the obligatory story about what happened on the first phone call, and Kim has a different version of this, but go with me, okay? <laughs> I knew when I called her to go out, she was not going to want to go out. And the reason I suspected that was because when I was in this Baptist high school, I got in a lot of trouble. And she knew that. Uh, they had a thing called a demerit system. They gave you pieces of paper when you did something wrong. And if you get so many of those pieces of paper, you get suspended. I've been, I had been suspended. 
When you come back, the next semester, if you get X number, you are kicked out, expelled forever. I got right to that number and had to go a full month without getting an extra piece of paper in order to stay in school. But I managed to do it by God's grace. So Kim knows all of this. That this guy's a rabble-rouser, and who knows what he's doing, and what's he going to want to be doing if we go out on this date? So I call her, and I say, hey, it's me. Do you remember me? And she says, yeah, I remember you. (laughs) Not enthusiastic. And I say, well, some of us are going to be going out this weekend. Would you like to, to go out? And this is what she says. Quote. I think we're having a family reunion. (laughs) And my response is, when will you know that you're having a family reunion? Doesn't it take a little time to plan these sorts of things? Now, she tells me later, what she meant to say was, I think we're going to a family reunion. She said, I think we're having one. Nevertheless, I persisted. And I said, well, when will you know? And she says in a couple days, and she told me later, she was trying to brush me off, but I called back in two days, and... I said, are you having a family reunion? (laughs) And she says, yes, we are. So, and then her her voice just trailed off like, so drop that. So get lost. But I say to her, why do I think, even if you weren't having a family reunion, you wouldn't want to go? And then she says, well, I think I would. And I said, well, what makes you think you wouldn't? And then it all comes out. Well, I don't know who's going to be there. Is there going to be drinking involved? So I now have to give her my spiritual resume. And by this time, I had sensed that the Lord might be leading me in a pastoral ministry. So I say that to her. Hey, I think I'm going to become a pastor. And she tells me later, I didn't believe any of that. (laughs) But I talked her into going out. And we went out, and for three months after that, we saw each other pretty much every day for three months, had very heavy talks uh, about life, about ministry. And three months after that first date, we were engaged. And 14 months after that first date, we were married. So we were married at age 22, and we celebrated 30 years this past March. Now, I'm at this Baptist church. I'm dating Kim. And Kim had grown up in good solid churches. So she knew a bad one when she saw it. So she's in this Ruckman Hiles Baptist Church and she knows it's not very good. I can't tell the difference because I've grown up in a Pentecostal background. So actually the teaching I was getting, even at this crazy Baptist church, was better than I had grown up. up But Kim's kind of nudging me saying, you know, there's some things wrong. Over time, after about three, three to four years, you know, I grow, develop some discernment. We, we leave there. And uh, we were married in uh, February of 85 at the old Temple Baptist Church. If anybody knows where that is. It uh, was in Redford. It is now Northridge. But it was Temple Baptist. And we only went there for one year, and it happened to be the year we were getting married. And that's only because we didn't know where to go after we left this, this church. But then after that, we found the church in Flat Rock, which is Huron Baptist Church in Flat Rock. And the pastor was then and still is to this day, Stephen Thomas. Pastor Thomas was a graduate of Detroit Baptist Seminary in Allen Park, that intercity runs. So we heard about that church, only had about 30 people at the time we went there, but I saw this and him as a guy where I could be mentored for ministry and serve. 
And that's exactly what happened. I went to seminary, uh, served, we served in that church for 16 years. The final nine of those 16 years, I was on staff as the associate pastor. And then in 2000, the church commissioned our family and three other families to start this church. So we had our first service September 9 of 2001. And it's been a little over 14 years since. We started with 11 people, seven adults and four children in a, in a living room. So for us to be able to now in the last three years, we purchased this building, moved in in February of 13. So next month will be three years that we've been in this building. For us to be able to move out of the living room, move into some rented high schools that we used over the years, and then now for us to have our own place, God has brought us a, a long way. And as I said in the first hour, it's been a, a great uh, a great journey for us. So that's uh, a bit about uh, us, my, my wife uh, and I. We have two daughters. Uh, one is uh, turning 21 in uh, 21 in February next month. And then Annie uh, just turned 18 last week. So we have a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old, one in college and one that's graduating uh, high school. So if you turn to page two, that's how our church came to be. I want to tell you why we're not Community Baptist Church. We started as Community Baptist Church out of Huron Baptist Church in Flat Rock. They commissioned us, as I said. Uh, And we are a Baptist church in terms of our beliefs. So why did we change the name? We did that in January of 13, the month before we moved into this building. And we did that, honestly, because we're moving into the building. If we're ever going to do a name change, now's the time to do it when you move into the building. But why did we even consider a name change? It's really because of what I told you, in large part what I told you about the church I was in, the first Baptist church I was in, the Hiles Ruckman crazy Baptist church. That when when people see, when the average person sees a sign and it has a, a, a designation on it, they don't know what perhaps many of you, perhaps all of you know, which is when you see one Baptist church, it's an independent, autonomous church. And if you've been to one, you haven't been to them all. So because the one down the street's crazy doesn't mean that this, this one is. You may know that, but many people do not. Because, for example, if you grew up Catholic, if you've been to one Catholic church, you've been to them all. The, the liturgy's going to go the same way, all of that. So they assume the same thing. When they read in the newspaper about Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas, uh, protesting at military funerals, signs that say God hates fags and all of that, going to the Supreme Court in the news headlines, the average for many people think your church is that because they see Baptists. Now, anecdotally, I began to hear that. In fact, we have some people in our church right now who... Their testimony is, I would never have stepped foot in a Baptist church because of Westboro Baptist and some of the things that they had heard about Baptist. They associated us all the same way. The only reason they're here is in God's good providence. They had a health situation. One of their neighbors was a person in our church. They befriended them. They uh, asked if they'd like to talk to our pastor. They, so I, my wife and I went over to their house, and God used that to bring them to the Lord, and they've come to our church. But they would have never just walked into a Baptist church because they would have associated it with all of that. So really because of, frankly, the crazy Baptists out there, 
we decided to distinguish ourselves by uh, becoming Community Bible Church. But I want to make clear to you all that we are a, a Baptist church. And in fact, in Appendix A, at the back of this notebook, is our doctrinal statement. Um, so, And it, it's very clearly a Baptist statement of faith. All right, any questions then about any of that? First lesson then on page, uh, page three. The vision, or excuse me, I'm still in the introduction, I'm sorry, on page three. The vision of our church. Our vision is what we're going to be by God's grace, and our mission is what we're going to do by God's grace. Now, some use vision and mission interchangeably, but I distinguish them that way. The vision is what we want to be. Mission is what we're going to do because of who we are. So our mission, uh, our vision in the box there is to be a healthy community of faith. But, of course, that then requires answering the question, what does a healthy community of faith look like? Now, next week in Lesson 2, we're going to go through these seven bullet points. You see them there? Those are the seven vital signs of a healthy church. And we've had those since day one of the beginning of our church to strive to fit this profile of a healthy church. Next week's lesson will be devoted to those seven things. So I'll go over those at that time. But then there's the mission of our church. What do we want to do as a result of who we are? The mission of Community Bible Church is to do three things. Help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. Our theme verse is Colossians 1.28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that, here's our goal, present everyone fully mature in, in Christ. In order to reach everyone in our sphere of influence, we're structured to reach and teach. That is, reach unbelievers, teach believers. That intentional structure is discussed in Lessons 1 and 3, respectively. So we'll see some of that, part of that today. All things being equal, healthy churches grow. If by God's grace we're the kind of church we ought to be, then numerical growth will follow. Now let me just stop there. So it's important for you to understand that our church's objective is to be healthy, not to be large. And... If the church is to grow, it grows because it's healthy. But our objective is not to get people at all costs. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, We are not afraid at all to teach the Bible straight, whether people it appeals to people or not. There is no watering down of the message in order to appeal to numbers of, of people. So it's important for you to know that because a church that has as its objective growth will always be tempted and and very few churches are able to resist this temptation. If your objective is growth, then you're going to modify things to accommodate that growth. And our, our objective is not growth. Our objective is health, and growth is a byproduct of the health. And the health looks like what we're going to see next week, the, the seven vital signs of a, of a healthy church. All right, on page four. The beliefs of our church, and as I said, we really are a Baptist church, and this is an acrostic that has been used for many years to describe the distinctive beliefs of Baptists. Baptists are not the only ones who believe any of these, but Baptists are the only ones who believe all of these, all of them together. So these are Baptist distinctives, and these are uh, the distinctives of our church, and our full statement of faith and our bylaws 
as I said earlier, is included in Appendix A. Now, in this course, I don't go through our doctrinal statement. Um, but I call your attention to these core beliefs and our doctrinal statement. I encourage you, if you can't sleep sometime, to try to read through the doctrinal statement. <laughs> and you won't find anything crazy in there. There's no snake handling in there you know, or any of that. But you should, you should take a look at that. Uh, and uh, if you see anything there about which you have questions, of course, then I'm available to answer those. All right. Then lesson one on page five, that we seek to be an intentional church. Now, I'm not going to cover, read every line. I'm going to cover but not read every line here. That's why we have it in full uh, text form for you to be able to read. But I do want to point out uh, some of the important uh, points on these pages. We seek to be an intentional church. What that means is what we do here, we don't do simply because it's churchy or because we've always done it. We had the opportunity 14 years ago to step back and think about what should our church look like. Now, that's something that you only get to do one time. You only get to start once. And the opportunity to plant a church brand new is actually an exciting and scary thing but it also offers you an opportunity to step back and to say, uh, why have we experienced church the way we have? And are there any things that we could intentionally and should intentionally restructure in order for us to be more effective? And that's what we did 14 years ago. In the planning process with that core group that was commissioned with us from, uh, from Huron Baptist, we planned together what the structure of our church would look like. And, and and our mindset going into it then was that we wanted to be intentional in what we do, not simply do it because we've always done it. Now, we also didn't want to discard it simply so we could be cool. Which is the other which is the other extreme. You know, the one extreme is we just do it because we've always done it. But then the other side of it is we want to be hip. And so we're not going to do it because everybody else is doing it or because that's what we've grown up with. And we have no desire to do that. If it's something that helps us implement objectives that God has given us in Scripture, then that's something that we want to do and something we want to maintain, and, and we have. So in the middle of that page, middle of page 5, you see function versus form. And what we mean by that is, of course, that's used in architecture, but it actually applies to the way the Bible describes the early church. And it applies to it this way. That as you read the history of the first century church in what is called the book of Acts, in the book of Acts what you find is uh, functions that the church was to carry out. But you don't find prescribed ways, forms, in which it's to be carried out. To put it another way, you find the things that they're supposed to do, but not how they're supposed to do it. So you are left then to use wisdom in implementing the forms, the how of, of doing it. And to prove that, middle of that page, we say as one surveys the New Testament, he finds that it's filled with directives regarding the functions we're to perform, but shorts on, it's short on specifics regarding the forms to carry them out. So, for instance, Hebrews 10.25 says we're to not to give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. It tells us what we're to do, meet regularly and encourage. But it doesn't tell you how to do it. So, for instance, we're not told when to meet, how often or where, what the order of service should be, and so on. 
We're given illustrations of these in the New Testament, but it's impossible to derive universal forms to carry out these functions. In fact, with regard to forms in the New Testament, we find that they're most often given without any form specified. You know, we're told, evangelize, go into all the world and make disciples. Okay, that's a directive. That's a function. How do you do that? And you're going to have to figure out ways to, forms, to, to carry that out. So they're most often given without a form. The forms that are given are often partial and incomplete. Here's an example, Acts 5.42. It says that the apostles, quote, taught. That's a function. That's something they did. And they did it from house to house. That's a way they did it. But we're not told whether they taught in every house or just some, whether they taught believers and unbelievers, whether they went inside or they were outside the house, whether neighbors were invited. We're not told any of that. So it's partial and incomplete. And then, last, the forms for the same function often vary from one context to another. Again, the very same verse, Acts 5.42. The apostles, in in addition to teaching from house to house, it says they taught in the temple courts. So they had two different forms of doing this. Sometimes they went to the temple courts, sometimes they went house to house to house. So in the Bible, you can't absolutize as you from the Bible, you can't absolutize forms because they're often not described, they're often incomplete, and they're always changing. Yet, page six, changing forms of ministry is often is often difficult. It's been observed that change is so difficult it only occurs when there's a crisis. That is when we have to be forced to change. Now, for the church, the crisis ought to come from confrontation with the objectives given in the Word of God. If we're failing to carry out those objectives effectively, then that ought to create a crisis that makes us open to change. Now, do you follow what's being said there? We ought to be regularly asking ourselves, what has God said the church is supposed to do? And are we doing that well? And if we're not doing it well, then let's talk about how we can do it, how we can do it well. That ought to create the the crisis for us. But though the forms cannot be absolutized, the functions that we're to perform are very clear in the Word of God. Jesus gave two overarching functions in the Great Commission, those of evangelism and edification. Make disciples, that is evangelize. And then he says to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's build them up, edification. And then after Jesus gives that command, we find the book of Acts in the first church carrying out his directive. And you have in Acts chapter 2, the very first church in Jerusalem, and we're given a description of what they did. You see that in verses 42 to 47. And you see the bullet points about two-thirds of the way down? This passage succinctly describes functions that are mentioned many times in the New Testament. And so it gives us a model for the three kinds of experiences a healthy church is going to be structured to achieve. So our church has intentionally tried to structure itself to do these things. Give people learning experiences with the Word of God. Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So a church that's structured properly needs to structure itself in a way that gives people learning experiences with the Word of God. But secondly, they participated in the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So another element of the way a church should be structured is we should have relational experiences with other believers. Now, here's an area then where we intentionally had to think about how can we structure CBC to be effective in this. And we decided that, for example, on Sunday evenings, 
we would not have an all-church gathering like we have had for years at our parent church. Now, let me just say, the all-church gathering on a Sunday night is a fine thing to do. So there's nothing wrong with that. But we also need to understand there's nothing in the Bible about that either. That's one of these forms that we gotta we got to figure out. So we've structured ourselves to have these learning experiences on Sunday mornings. Our Wednesday evening is structured in a Bible Institute format and then our kids' programs and teen programs. So we have a number of learning experiences. But we also need to have these baked-in, structured, relational experiences. And Sunday evenings, we have something called community groups. Those are home groups. And every Sunday night, we have multiple home groups meeting where people meet in the living room to discuss application of what was preached the week before. They do that around snacks. They do that in the living room. And then they have time a time of prayer together. And what we found is that that venue, that form, fosters relationships, deeper relationships, better than we can on Sunday morning. Now, we even try on Sunday morning to foster relationships a bit too. That's why we have 30 minutes of bagels and coffee. Now, the bad news with starting that is, if we ever stop that, (laughs) I'll be murdered. (laughs) Okay? So, I mean, we could not have a sermon on a particular Sunday, but don't forget the bagels and the coffee, okay? (laughs) So, relational experiences. And then witnessing experiences. Verse 47 of Acts 2 says, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. So, we want to structure ourselves to be able to interact with, with unbelievers. How do we do that? Some of you, may, many of you, if you've been in church, grown up in an evangelical church, on Sunday mornings your structure was probably uh, Sunday school first and worship second. And we, as you've noticed, have that the other way around. Now, again, that was not just so we could be different or be cool. It was intentional. And the intentionality is actually for this witnessing experiences piece. That this hour, the 11 o'clock hour, we call Discovering God. And we do series when we're not doing the newcomers orientation. I do series in that hour that we invite unbelievers to come to. For me to give biblical perspective on particular topics and then bring the gospel to bear on those, on those things. It's a structured witnessing time, evangelistic time for us. Now, I'll talk more about uh, that in just in just a bit and in one of our future lessons. All right, so our mindset is intentional. We The way we think about it is we want to see what has God given us as the objectives to carry out, what's the best way to carry those out. I want to say one other thing, we'll move on to the next point. Just because God has not given us the forms and we have to wisely and appropriately determine what those forms are going to be, that is the case. But just because that is the case, it doesn't mean any way you do it is okay. So you have to think carefully about how you're going to do it and whether or not how you do it and the forms you use are consistent with what the Bible teaches and the character of God. Let me give you one example, and I'll beat on this some more next week. But one example is this. Many very large churches have become very large because they've chosen a form, a way to do church that I am convinced 
contradicts some very important biblical principles. One of those is this, that the, the Sunday morning service becomes an evangelistic service. Now remember, I said we have this Discovering God Hour that has an evangelistic bent to it. But our worship service is not for evangelism. Now do you know why our worship service is not for evangelism? Here's why. Because unbelievers can't worship. Have you ever thought about that? So we don't structure our worship service for people who can't do it. Seeker services do that very thing. Seeker churches do that. They have designed the worship service for people who can't worship, and that of necessity has a profound effect on the way they go about what they do. How they sing, what they say, all designed for people who actually, biblically, can't worship. So we have set our worship service off to be for believers. Now, anybody's welcome to come. And every Sunday, we have unbelievers in our worship service. And often, at the end of the worship service, I will say, if you've never come to Christ, here's how you can come to Christ. And trust Christ right now. So we give people the opportunity to do that. But we have not structured anything in our service uh, as a primary element for, for, um, for unbelievers. So... I'll put it this way, and then we'll move on. We seek to be guest-sensitive, but not guest-driven. Now, I don't say seeker-driven or seeker-sensitive, because I don't like the whole seeker terminology. Here's why. You know, I've just got this hang-up on Romans 3 that says there's no one who seeks God. No, not one. So biblically, if you hold a seeker service, guess who shows up? Nobody. Because there aren't any seekers, all right? It's God-seeking, not people-seeking. God seeks people. So I don't like the seeker terminology, but guests, you know, people who are visitors, people who are not part of your church. And we seek to be guest-sensitive, that is. We're happy to have anybody come who wants to come and be sensitive to the fact that you're there. That's why I say things like, hey, don't worry about giving the money, just pass the basket. That's why we give out Bibles when I get up to preach. Because you may have people in there who don't know how to fumble around in a Bible. So we give them a Bible, and it's actually marked at 1 Thessalonians like it was this morning. Because they don't know where 1 Thessalonians is. If I just say, turn to 1 Thessalonians, some of you will be able to find it. Other people can't. So we try to be sensitive. That's just showing common Christian grace. But every element of our service is designed for designed for believers. It's not guest-driven. All right. Our mindset's intentional, and then our structure is intentional. A healthy church will be structured, that is, it will develop forms to facilitate the three objectives of our mission statement, learning, loving, and living. And a failure to balance these is the product of an unhealthy church. So, you see those things, learning experiences, relational experiences, witnessing experiences. And I say that you can be unbalanced in those. Can you think of churches that are unbalanced in one or three of them? One or two of those. So... Can a church be unbalanced in its learning experiences with the Word? It can be all about, every time you get together, it's a seminar. And that's the only thing you do. Or you can have churches that are all about relationships. When I was a Pentecostal, that's pretty much what we did. We were the most loving people in the world, hugging, and all kinds of... We didn't... You know, if, if you were asked to give a biblical definition of love... 
we wouldn't be able to do that. But we were really loving people, really relational. And then you've got the witnessing. Everything is witnessing. Everything is evangelism. But a healthy church needs to have all three of those things going on in roughly equal proportion in order to be a healthy church. That's what we mean. So our mission statement, bottom of page 6 again, is to help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. Achieving those three requires we structure our ministry accordingly. We need to create forums that help us carry out those functions. And it all begins with helping people, top of page 7, learn about God, particularly those who don't know Him. We've intentionally structured our ministry in order to reach and assimilate folks into our church by establishing... And notice this phrase, a forum to address the unchurched. Now, that forum to address the unchurched is what I described to you a bit ago. It's this hour when we're not doing newcomers in the auditorium called Discovering God. I just finished a series in middle December called Marriage Matters. It was 10 weeks. We had a banner for that series out on 4th Street. We have invitations made for our people to invite their friends. We put an ad in the newspaper. We invite people to come to that second hour, not worship, that second hour, to learn what the Bible has to say about marriage. And in that context, I'm able to give the gospel to people because the truth is you can't, obviously, you can't carry out what the Bible says about marriage if you don't have a relationship with Christ. It's impossible. And so it gives us a forum to do that. And that's what we mean, top of page 7, when we talk about a forum for addressing the unchurched. Now, there's a biblical pattern for having forums where you can address unbelievers. In the middle of page 7, you see some of those. We see, uh, uh, one author says, we see in the scriptures that Jesus regularly taught many people who were not yet his disciples. A good deal of his ministry was public teaching on hillsides and at street corners. Likewise, the Apostle Paul regularly interacted with non-believing Jews and Greeks in whatever public forum was available. Acts 17 records that he, quote, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. In Ephesus, Paul had daily discussions in a public lecture hall for two years with the effect that, quote, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul used a variety of public settings to proclaim and explain the gospel to his audience. And then, historically, uh, bottom of page 7, you have the evangelistic tasks carried out in fields, in open air uh, meetings, and so on. And so, top of page 8, we decided that discovering God would be a way for us to carry out that biblical model and that historical model. And we chose to do it at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And so here's what discovering God looks like. We say having a regular time to communicate with unbelievers is a good idea. And I think it's one of the major failings of Bible-believing and Bible-teaching churches as opposed to the anything-goes, entertainment, seeker types. But our type churches, I think, fail in not having a regular time to communicate with unbelievers. It's a good idea to have that. The question is, when are you going to have that? And there are a lot of ways you could have that. A lot of times you could have it. We chose to have it every Sunday morning or almost every Sunday morning. But the worship service, again, there is the wrong time to do it because worship is for believers. Unbelievers, by definition, cannot worship. But given that in our culture most are inclined to consider spiritual matters on Sunday morning, we thought it wise to offer a service on Sunday morning but separate from worship. 
at which we could address unbelievers. That's why we came up with Discovering God. So here's what the Discovering God Hour looks like. It begins at 11. All right, we lied. 11.15. It's contemporaneous with Sunday school. So right now as I speak, we've got all our age-graded classes going on. The setting is a classroom. So when somebody, an unbeliever, comes in to one of those series, comes into the marriage series, they're not coming into uh, a worship service. Uh, they're coming into a classroom. So it's a comfortable setting for them. Most often I have a notebook of material that I give them. And the presentation is, as I said, guest-sensitive, not guest-driven. And here's how it's guest-sensitive. Care is taken to communicate in language the unchurched can understand. And all I mean by that is I have tried to learn over these 14 years to do things like this. Is I rarely say, I, I almost I hope I never say, in the Discovering God. In... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says this. I Instead of saying Paul says this, I say the Bible says this. Now why? Because that guy doesn't know who Paul is. And the minute I say Paul says this, he's going, who's Paul? He's mentioned like three. He's got to be a pretty important dude. And instead of thinking about what I'm saying, he's worrying about who Paul is. Okay? Even Old Testament and New Testament, if you've been around here very long, you'll hear me say... I don't say Old Testament. I'll say in the first part of your Bible, it says this. And again, it's because there are people who don't know what that is. They don't know what those divisions are about. Now, we have a class that I'm teaching right now on Wednesday nights called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible that lays all that stuff out. But if they haven't taken that, then they don't know what that is. And that's what I mean by trying to censor my language so it doesn't throw people. The unchurched are invited to come informally. We decided to do this early on in the life of our church, that we would try to accommodate all comers uh, and not have unnecessary obstacles to them coming, one of which might be might be dressed. Uh, so I have always dressed like this uh, because the truth is people don't get their cues on how to dress from me, from the pastor. They expect, think about it, most people expect you to be a priest. If you dress differently than everybody else, they don't care. They get their cues from everybody else. They get their cues from the greeters and the ushers and and everybody else. So over the 14 years, it has developed the way we had hoped. That if you look in this room, and if you look on any given Sunday, you'll have a variety of people and a variety of dress there. So apparently that has not become an unnecessary obstacle for folks to come in that second hour, notice, see there, no offering is taken. You know, one of the obstacles to people coming to your church is they think that you want their money. Well, we invited you to come to a thing. Get this now. We not only don't want your money, we don't even pass the hat. We gave you a free notebook, and we told you there's a, get, a gift available for you at the information center. So we not only didn't ask for your money, we gave you stuff. All right? So no offering is taken. There's no music I have no desire to have an unbeliever singing praise to Jesus. None. Because it's completely meaningless. So if we're inviting unbelievers to come to this thing, then there's no music. We just get right to the topic. And then the topics are chosen to address the unchurched. And we have a list of those in Lesson 3. Lastly, our mindset's intentional. Then our structure's intentional. And then our schedule is intentional. And all this, these next two pages are saying is, on our church's calendar, We structure it around these outreach series that we do. 
So we have these outreach series. I'm going to have, uh, after this class, January 31st, we're starting the Get a Life uh, series. Uh, after that, right after Easter, we will start uh, a new series uh, on uh, called Side by Side, uh, and that's using some published material. And notice, we do that within the church year. We do it in January, we do it in the fall, and we do it right after Easter. So we do three of these a year. And in the summer, we don't try to do an outreach series because, as you see there, number four, the summer is useless. Okay, For outreach purposes, the summer is useless because everybody's gone on vacation. Schedules are different, so we don't even try to do an, an outreach for, for that. So we do these three times a year, and then we put the rest of our calendar around that. So shortly after each one of those series, a few weeks out, we'll have a baptism schedule. Now, why? Because we anticipate that there are going to be some people who come to the Lord. And they're going to hear me go, hey, our next baptism is. And that's primarily how I get people who come and say, hey, tell me about baptism. I think I was baptized when I was a baby, but does that count? And then I'm able to get together with them and make sure they understand the gospel and have received Christ. And so we schedule a baptism. We also schedule a fellowship, a family fellowship, within weeks after one of those series starts so that a person who's coming to that saying, hey, I'm okay with this, I'd like to get to know these people a little bit better, we invite them to a, our hayride or our ice skating or bowling event or whatever it is. But those are all done intentionally on our church calendar, not haphazardly. So even our church calendar is intentional, and it's intentionally put together based upon these Discovering God series we do. All right, 12.03, almost made it at the allotted, in the allotted time. Any questions? you guys have at all all right lord willing we'll see you next week and we'll look at the seven vital signs of a healthy church hey ken sir i'm just wondering about the governance or the monitoring or anything you have a board yeah no it's a good question so if any of you need to pick up kids or any of that you need to leave that's good it's okay uh but bob's question is about how's the leadership structure and we have what we call a leadership team and the leadership team is, uh, is comprised of the pastors and the deacons. Uh, the pastors direct the affairs of the church, a la 1 Timothy 5.17. So the pastors set the agenda for the church. Now, how do they do that? Uh, the pastors say, you know, this is what we think we should do in the next quarter, in the next six months. But they take that to the leadership team, that is the deacons. And then the group of us discuss that together. And if it's something that requires the whole church's approval, and what things do we have to go to the church for, for whole church approval? It's things that affect the whole church. Anything that affects the whole church, we go to the church for congregational vote. But the only things that make it, Bob, to congregational vote are the things that have a consensus amongst the whole leadership team. That's the pastors and deacons. So I have never and never would bring something to the congregation that I just thought of to say, let's vote on. Or even just that me and whatever other pastors we have have thought of. We would go to the deacons, the whole leadership team would discuss that. And then only if we have a consensus amongst the whole leadership team would it be taken to the, the congregation. Now, the reason I say consensus as opposed to unanimous is because... Uh, you might have one person, you know, who doesn't want to do it, but everybody else does. Now, even if we have one person who doesn't want to do it, we'll table it. Even if one guy says, I just don't feel right about this, we'll table it. We'll come back to it next time. 
and then we'll discuss it again. And if he's still not, we might table it again. But then after that, if it's you know seven to one, eight to one, uh, then we go ahead and present it to the congregation. But it's got to be a consensus. To my knowledge, in our 14 years, we've never had anything come before the congregation where more than one person on the leadership team did not want to do it. Um, the most is one person who had reservations about it, but everybody else was in favor. So that's what helps keep us in check, is that the pastor set the direction, but even that has to be checked by the deacons who are part of the leadership team, and nothing goes to the church for approval unless there's a consensus among that whole group. Does that help, Tom? Okay. Anything else? Okay. Thanks, guys.